0: Peachtree, we are continuing our journey through the Bible. So I'm going to invite you to grab the Bible that's located in the pew rack in front of you, or the one that you've brought with you this morning. We are in a season where we have a dream for a Bible in every hand and God's story in every heart, and it's our opportunity throughout the course of this year as we've been going through all of the major sections of the Bible. And let me share with you this roadmap of what we've been doing this last year. We were walking. All all the way up through July with the Old Testament, and starting in August, we jumped into the New Testament, and it is not too late for you to grab one of the Quest Bibles that's located uh, out the doors or down into the William Center as well as for you to have a chance to jump on board with our New Testament reading plan, about 30 or 40 minutes worth of reading to get you to have the long arc, the whole overview of the New Testament. And during the month of August, we are talking about the ministry of Jesus, the time in his life where he began to preach and to teach and to heal and to show us how God's kingdom is coming on earth as it is in the heavens. And what we're noticing as we have been walking through the book of Mark with these different passages is how Jesus has come with a unique authority. And the different types of authority that Jesus demonstrates as we saw in Mark chapter two is that Jesus has authority over sin and forgiveness He has authority, we saw last week, over creation, over nature, that the creation meets its creator, and that this week in chapter 5, we're noticing how Jesus has authority over evil and the powers and the principalities of darkness in this world. And so today, we are going to look, admittedly, in a passage that a lot of the times you might want to skip, because this is kind of a dark and... An unsettling passage. But this story is here for a reason. Let me begin with a story to see if I can set the stage. Well, you see, when my wife and I met in seminary, when we were there, we were a part of a ministry of the school that was called the Touring Choir. And on behalf of the seminary, there were about 12 of us or so that were in a choir that, that would go to a different church every weekend in order to sing. Now, our seminary was located in Princeton, New Jersey, and so most of the churches that we went to were like this one. They were small, rural, old congregations. In fact, when we went to this church, which was one of the oldest church buildings in New Jersey, um, I think we tripled the congregation in its size when we went there. But other times, we went to larger churches like this congregation when we went to the Brick Presbyterian Church in New York City. And so it was when we were going to Brick Presbyterian Church, and you need to understand that because the seminary has students that come from all over the world, that there was a a wonderful singer and woman who was from Ghana and the continent of Africa in her choir. And she had never been to New York City before. She had only seen pictures and seen like in TV what New York City was like. And so as we started in the little minibus to drive through New York City, she got more and more nervous and afraid. And by the time we arrived in front of the Brick Presbyterian Church to sing, the doors open, we all peel out, but my wife notices that this woman is not getting off the bus. And Kelly's trying to coax her off the bus and she would only say one word over and over again. Babylon, Babylon. Babylon. She was so afraid of New York City, Babylon being that evil empire from the Old Testament that enslaved and took the people of Israel into exile. She's not wrong, is she, when you think about New York City? (laughs) But she was so scared that this place was so foreign and so evil to her, she didn't wanna get off the bus. This is probably how the disciples felt when their boat got to the shore and the land of the Gerasenes in the story that we're about to read. Let me share with you a map so we can set the stage. This is the first time that Jesus is about to take his followers outside of Israel. And so they go from Capernaum, which is at the top of the lake, in the little orange arc, and go down over to the eastern side. And on the eastern side, they are now outside of Israel. This is dark, pagan, foreign territory. And the disciples do not want to get out of the boat. Mark chapter 5, let's start reading in the first verse. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and he broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. In the beginning of the story, what we see is that the disciples are cowering back in the boat and Jesus is the only one who's willing to get out of the boat. And out of the darkness of the cemetery, the tombs where this person lived, he came running for them. A couple years ago, uh, a group of us from this church, about four couples or so, I had never been to Savannah, Georgia before, and we decided to take like a long weekend together as a group of couples. And we woke up on a Saturday morning, and I asked, what are we going to do today? And our host said, we're going to go to the cemetery. I'm like, excuse me, this is not my idea of a good time. I was thinking brunch. And... But sure enough, apparently this is what you do when you go to Savannah and you get to see images like this that people love to go around and to see the monuments and the historical markers and the the kind of the creepy ambience of the moss that's hanging from the trees. You need to know that this is not what pastors aspire to do when they're on vacation. We go to enough cemeteries on our own. And yet, what happens is that people find that these are interesting, and yet during the time of Jesus, going to a cemetery was not an act of vacation. It was not a tourist stop. In fact, it was not only creepy, it was not only a place where people grieved, it was a place of contamination. Believe it or not, we know where this story took place, and there's a national park there. It's actually a tourist trap now. Um, This is called Kersey. These are some of the ruins in the garrison side of the lake, and those hills that you can see up there um, have a variety of different caves that they have archeological evidence of first century tombs being used at this time. We know that this is the area out of which this man was living and this man was living there not of his own volition. Did you notice this detail? That they had chained him up to be there? That they were so uncomfortable and unnerved by him, by his behavior and what was going on with him, that they not only pushed him to the margins of their town, but they went to the darkest place that they could find and they tried to entomb him there. And the word that Mark uses to describe in saying that no one could subdue him is the same word in the Greek that people used to try to tame a wild animal. There was a wildness about this guy. There was a fierceness about this guy that they wanted to put into the tombs. And this man is running straight down the hill towards Jesus. And the disciples cowering in the boat. Let's keep reading in verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many and he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now, I feel like I need to equip you as you are going to be reading the Bible Because as you're reading the New Testament, you're probably going to be surprised if you haven't read it before or haven't read it in a while at the frequency of the number of occasions where there are confrontations and conflicts between Jesus and these dark spiritual forces of the world. It's not just an occasional story. It's right at the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry. And one of the things that we might assume as we're reading these stories is, hey, haven't we gotten past this? Like with modern advances in psychiatry and psychology, haven't we gotten to the point that, you know, back in that day and age, they just didn't know any better. And so, but with today's sophisticated understanding of the human psyche and the brain, that that we understand that there weren't really any of these evil spirits or dark forces in the world, but, but we just didn't quite be able to understand how to categorize them or understand them back then. And you might read your Bible that way, I just have got to tell you, I don't think that that's a faithful understanding of the text. Let me see if I can explain that for you. There are lots of different dimensions of our society that need improvement. One of those dimensions of our society is our education system. And so we could work really hard, and we should, to keep making our education system better. But I tell you, even if we were able to perfect our education system, not every problem in this world would go away. The same thing would be true for healthcare. If we could take healthcare in our society and we could make it that much better and we should work towards that. But I'm gonna tell you, even if we perfected our healthcare system, that would not be able to account for all that is wrong in this world. The same thing is true with our economics and finance. If we were able to figure out for people to have enough and for no one to live in poverty and if we were able to fix those systems of justice and wealth and understanding and relating to one another and being able to provide for people in their daily needs, even if we fixed all of that, it would not account for all that is wrong in this world. Do you see what I'm driving at? What I'm driving at is that you cannot reduce all that is fallen and warped and manipulated in our society and just account for it by saying, if we could just fix these systems or if these things could be optimized, then we wouldn't have any of those problems. What you need to understand is that there is more that is wrong and askew and amiss in this world than just a lack of money or a lack of health care, or a lack of education, or a lack of therapy. And the reason that I say that this is not a faithful reading and understanding of the text is that Jesus did not just come to optimize our lives and make our lives a little bit better. He came to conquer evil. We just prayed a few moments ago in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from what? Evil. In other words, C.S. Lewis says we can make two equal and opposite errors with regards to the demons, the dark spiritual forces that we read about in the text. One is, is that we can just pretend that they don't exist and say we're past that. And the other is that we can become unhealthily fixated on them. People will say, do you believe in demons? And my answer to that question is no, because what I believe in is God. But I do also believe that what God has come to do in Jesus Christ is to release us from even the spiritual forces in this world that would threaten to undo us. And so as Jesus goes to this foreign pagan land, as he takes the scared disciples out of the boat, this is an invasion. And I love having a, uh, a congregation that sends me like really good quotes. Somebody sent me this quote from C.S. Lewis this week. Keep sending me your good stuff, people, but don't send me any complaints. I hate that. Let's look at this quote. So this is like this. Enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, landed in disguise and is calling all of us to take part in the great campaign of sabotage. You and I get to be a part of the divine conspiracy of his good news and what is happening in this world of Jesus' invasion and his coming into our lives to rescue us from Evil. And let's see how he does that and continue in verse 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Does anybody have any questions or shall we close in prayer? What on earth does this mean? Several years ago, when our girls were younger, we were out for breakfast. Have you noticed that there's like a brunch theme that I got going on? I must be extra hungry this morning. We're out to breakfast, and one of our daughters held up a piece of bacon and shook it and said, Papa, is bacon pig This is our animal-loving daughter, there's Wilbur, there's Babe the pig, there's so many cute pigs, and I'm just like, this is the end of bacon in our household, I know it. But we also know that the truth will set you free, and so her mother and I reply that, yes, bacon is pig, and she goes, pig is good, (laughs) and begins to eat it. In other words, it's hard to understand the story unless you understand the framework of how you understand the different perspectives of how they viewed pigs and how they viewed pigs in that society. If you were an Israelite and you were hearing this story, you would have laughed out loud because pigs were considered, this is not approved by PETA, but this is, pigs were considered the lowliest, the dirtiest animal, and this would have been comical to them but imagine if you were a pig herder in that area and you had lost upward of 2,000 pigs economically. They didn't think this was funny. And so what gives with Jesus acquiescing and sending the demons from the man into the herd of pigs? Well, I want to teach you a phrase, and I need to get a little bit philosophical on you here so you can understand this. I want you to say this with me. We're going to put this on the bottom of the screen. Evil only exists as the corruption of the good. Say that with me. Evil only exists as the corruption of the good. In other words, evil doesn't exist on its own. Evil cannot stand on its own two legs. Evil is a broken power. One of the things that evil cannot do is be all by itself. Darkness only exists because there is a blockage or an absence of the light. And there isn't anything good in this world that cannot be manipulated by the forces of darkness, and there's nothing that is evil that isn't a manipulation of something that is already good that God has made. Think of any of the Ten Commandments. Think of of murder. Murder is a, is a manipulation, a corruption of the gift that is life. Lying is a corruption, is a manipulation of the gift, and it is the truth. It doesn't matter, you know, you know idolatry is a manipulation or a corruption, a warped understanding of the gift of right worship, And so all of these different dimensions, whether it's despair as the shadow side to joy or hatred as the shadow side to love or if it's warfare as the shadow side to peace, evil doesn't exist on its own. It only exists as a corruption or a manipulation of something that is good. And so when the demons ask You know, when they see Jesus, and ironically, in the New Testament, it's the demons who see Jesus for who he really is. They say, don't cast us away, send us into the pigs, because he knows that if he casts them out of the man and they don't go to another host, that they will be destroyed. And in the story, he sends them into the pigs and they end up being destroyed because the pigs throw themselves off of the cliff. Again, we know where this story likely took place because right near in this area, there are very steep cliffs on the eastern side of the lake that fall down and roll towards the water. And what we're about to notice is that when Jesus does this, it's very unsettling. But not in the way you might think. Let's keep reading in verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and what? It's on the screen, people. In his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened and the demon possessed man told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Do you remember last week when we talked about how the disciples were in the boat and the big storm built up and they became afraid? And do you remember that we talked about last week how how then Jesus calmed the storm and then they became really, really terrified and afraid. This was only last week. Nod your head if you remember last week's message. That there's good kinds of fear and there's bad kind of fear. What we see and discover in this story is that they're afraid of this man and so they try to lock him up and keep him away from them. But do you know what really scares them? seeing him in his right mind. There are people who are afraid of change, of transformation. And they don't believe that it can happen. One New Testament scholar put it like this. I love this version of it. Instead of giving him the key to the city, they give him the cold shoulder. The demons had begged Jesus to let them stay in the region and the townspeople now begged Jesus to leave the region. They're more comfortable with the malevolent forces that take captive human beings and destroy animals than they are with the one who can can expel them. They can cope with the odd demon-possessed wild man who terrorizes the neighborhood with random acts of violence, but they want to keep someone with Jesus' power at length's length. On the other side, they chase off the source of their deliverance and salvation. My friends, I can not only tell you honestly that as your pastor, that there have been times when I have been unable to explain what was happening without accounting for the dark spiritual forces of this world. And I can also tell you honestly that I have seen plenty of people encounter and learn about the power of Jesus and that is exactly the moment when they want him to go away. Because it makes them uncomfortable. And then Jesus does the most un-Jesus-like thing yet. Let's finish the story in verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, which means 10 cities in that area, how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. What has Jesus been doing this whole time? This whole time, Jesus has been doing sign after sign after sign, pointing to the reality of of what God's kingdom is advancing here on earth, signs of of healing and of restoration and of goodness overcoming evil? What has he been doing as he's been going along this line? He has been collecting the most unexpected, ragtag, group of people to be his followers, his disciples. Follow me, follow me, follow me. And then here he comes to this place and he's got a guy who's been absolutely transformed who says, I'll leave everything and follow you. And what does Jesus say? No, thanks. He refuses. And he says, go home. Go home. This congregation is familiar with the life and the person of Louis Zamperini, who started out as a young man as an incredible runner and even ran in the Olympics that were in Germany. Eventually, he became a soldier and was in the Pacific Theater. And as a soldier in the Pacific Theater, his plane was downed and he had this incredibly harrowing survival journey on the open sea. And when he survives, he finds himself for years and years in a Japanese prison camp. As all and incredible as those stories were, do you know what the greatest challenge of Louis Zamperini's life was? It wasn't surviving in the boat, it wasn't surviving the physical or emotional torture of a prison camp. The greatest challenge that Louis Zamperini ever faced was going home. Here's what I want you to know the toughest mission field you'll ever face is in your own house in your own marriage and your own family with your closest friends because these are the people who see you at your best and see you at your worst. They know the full extent of who you really are. And in a lot of regards, it'd be easier for you to chuck it all and move to a distant continent to follow Jesus than it would be to turn around with God's redemptive love and transformation within your heart and to go back to your family and to go back to your home. And so as strange as it may sound this morning, I want you to feel and to hear the refusal of Jesus for you to just want to take the gospel somewhere else without your willingness to say, it's gonna start here, in my house, in my family, in my relationships. I want to allow that grace of God's conquering of evil to take root where you live, where you work, where you play. Go home, Jesus says. Go home. Let's pray. Father, we know what it's like to enter into an unsettling place And so like the disciples, we are reluctant to want to get outside our comfort zone. We look at what's going on in this world and we cry out in fear. Lord, there are places of grief and places of contamination. And you, God, are coming to set free that which could not be subdued by any other effort of our own. And so allow us as your people to move beyond education and healthcare and economics and psychology and to be willing to join forces with you, to be able to see Jesus for the way that he really is, as the one who has come as the conquering king to to not placate evil or manage evil, but to overcome it. And so will you not allow evil to corrupt the goodness that is in our hearts and our lives, And Lord, may we not beg you to leave us? And will we now hear your call to go back to our homes, to take your good news to the toughest mission field in the world, to where we actually live? And we pray these things in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said.